For those of you who remain here in person and on the live stream, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. So we consider the theme, the grace of God. This is God's Word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, give us grace to understand your grace, that we might not have an elementary understanding of it, but that we might begin to perceive its height and depth, its infinite reach, and that we might know your blessing, that we might wait for the hope of glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been considering in this series, what is the church for? That word for carries a lot of water. It's a, it's a, it's a very versatile word in the English language. I was an engineering major. We didn't take English classes. But uh, I'm fascinated by words anyway. Love to scrabble, maybe for the points, but words and their meanings, their definitions are just fascinating to me. And for, it's a diverse, powerful word. It can be a conjunction. It can be a preposition. It can mean support. You can root for your team. It can refer to representation or connection. I speak for the client or I speak for God or I speak for the military. It can refer to exchange. I'll sell it to you for $5. Or when you get those texts offering to buy your house, I always want to reply, I'll sell it for a million. Uh, nobody's taken me up on that yet. It can refer to length of time or length of space for six miles for a million years. It can be used for comparison that, you know, maybe you're pretty smart for your age or whatever. It can refer to purpose and reason. It's all for the glory, all for the kingdom. And here, Paul's use of the word for, it's holding a lot of weight because he uses it to introduce the heart of the entire letter. I mean, here we are at the end of chapter 2. He has spent all kinds of time introducing himself, talking to Titus about his instructions, 
for what he should be doing when the churches in Crete, what the qualifications for an elder ought to be, for how he should understand and deal with the, the opposition that he's facing uh, from the culture and from false teachers. What the believers in Crete ought to be like in their character and in their relationships with one another as they seek to mentor one another and encourage one another in grace. And it's only just now that he's really gotten to the point of why. Why should we do all this? What's the, how? How should we do all this? What is the whole point? Why is the church so important? What is it that God is doing, has done, plans to do that should give us this guidance, this understanding of what we're here for? It's the key to understanding everything that we are to be and to do as a church. And it's all here in this little phrase. For the grace of God has appeared. Everything that we are to be about. Everything that we are called to do. Everything that God plans, everything that God has done, is doing, and will do, it has, it has its foundation, its root, in His grace. And so if we were to answer this question, what is the church for? We can't really answer that question apart from an, an understanding, an appreciation, a, a, a grip of what His grace is. The church, we could say, is to be a people that are saturated with God's grace in a way that cannot be contained. Like when the the washing machine is overflowing and you can't stop it. Like a waterfall or trying to drain the oceans, the the church is to be a people so saturated with the grace of God that it cannot be contained. We're going to consider what that means for us. As we consider how God's grace has appeared, how God's grace trains us, and how God's grace is to be declared. Appearing, training, declaring Let's consider those three things this morning as we try to grapple with God's grace. The first thing I want us to consider is how the grace of God has appeared. This is a glorious thing. The problem with us in this world, in our culture, is we tend to focus on the negative. Anytime something new appears, we're just looking for reasons to shoot it down. Balloons or aerial vehicles and the like. Now, if you want to ask me later why there's no concern for it to be aliens, it does interest to me that we immediately go to, it's aliens. Must be aliens. And almost all the movies about aliens just suddenly appearing with their spaceships. V, if you are a child of the 80s. Or Independence Day, if you're a child of the 90s or all sorts of other movies. They just blow everything up. It's just bad news. Bad news all around. 
We focus on the negative. Just watch the nightly news. They have to add that special segment at the end. Now for some good news. It's such a a new and incredible thing when somebody just focuses on the good news that that John Krasinski, during the pandemic, started a little YouTube channel, Some Good News, and sold it for a bazillion dollars. Because it's like nobody's ever heard of the idea before. Yet, when God's grace appears, we start to wonder. We start to get concerned. We start to be afraid. What's the catch? What's it going to demand of me? Where is it going to take me? What's it going to require? What's it all about? But when the grace of God appears, it brings with it salvation. It brings with it glory. For we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior. Like God's grace brings salvation and glory that ought to lead God's people to overwhelming joy. To discover that that our God is the sort of God who when He shows up, when He appears, when He reveals Himself to this world... He reveals himself to be a God who overflows with grace to the sinner. He shows himself to be a God who is willing to pay the cost to redeem a people who've gone astray. He shows himself to be a God who desires in the depths of his being to take a people who have wandered like sheep and to collect them and gather them together and to purify them, to be his very own possession, to be close to him, to be precious to him. Our God, when he shows up, he shows up as a God overflowing with grace. Is that how we think of him? Certainly, there are times when God shows up and his wrath is made manifest. We read in Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God is being revealed against all the wickedness and ungodliness of men. It's interesting as you continue to read, it's that wrath that is revealed to those who've suppressed the truth of God And exchanged it for a lie. That we have somehow forgotten that God, even in our first parents' rebellion and sin, promised to save them and redeem them and to crush the head of the serpent. And it has been about that work ever since. That the truth of who our God is, is that he is a God who abounds in Grace. Is that the sort of God you know? The longer I live, the more 
I learn about myself, the more I see in the world around me, the more you share with me in those honest and vulnerable moments, the more I really begin to feel like I'm just starting to scratch the surface of what the the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith meant when they said that we live in an estate of sin and misery. And maybe the weight of that presses in on you too. That diagnosis that a loved one or you yourself receive. The the fear and the concern that we have for our children who are sick or who are wandering or who are hurting. The trouble that we have in this world, the wars and rumors of wars and the uncertainty and where is all of this going and the the, just the wickedness that seems to run amok and be called good when good is called evil. And it just leaves me sometimes wondering because I can't bear up under the weight. And maybe you found yourself there knowing deeply, personally, powerfully the weight of this world that is characterized by sin. And not just sin, but misery, a brokenness, and a sadness that steeps it to its core. And you wonder to yourself, is there any relief? And what the gospel declares to us is that in the midst of a world that reveals itself to be this corrupt, in the midst of a world that is so full of that kind of darkness and hopelessness and despair. The God of the universe shows up and reveals his grace. A grace that promises to redeem. A grace that promises to purify. A grace that brings joy where there is despair, light where there is darkness, life where there is death, redemption where there is sin. He asks nothing more of us than to cling to it. Have you felt that way? Have you ever felt so burdened that there is nothing left for you but to cling to that hope? Of grace. That's what the gospel calls you to. Not to an obligation. Not to a standard. Not to a task. But to receive and cling to the grace of God that has appeared. That is able to redeem you and purify you. And what's interesting about the way Scripture talks about it here is, is it talks about this grace as if it's its own substance, its own thing. And you're wondering, where can I get it? Where can I buy this? Where can I, can I receive it? Where can I plunge my hands into it and scoop all of it out that I can? Where is it to be found? In 
And the two times Paul uses this word appear, the first he implies that salvation. The second he makes it explicit. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That salvation is found in him. And if you want to find that grace, you can only find it in him. The one who gave his life to bear our sins that we might not have to bear them. Who died that we might know everlasting life. Who rose again that we might be covered in his righteousness and know our God rightly. The grace of God has appeared. And with it, it has revealed itself to be a grace That trains, for we read that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of of the glory of our great God and Savior. You know, even though the grace of God has appeared, all too often we just don't even know what to do with it. I read an article about a guy who found himself in a Starbucks line where somebody decided to pay for the order of the family behind him and somebody decided to pay for the order behind him and the drive through and, and it just kept going and kept going and kept going and kept going. And this guy pulls up and they're like, oh yeah, they paid for you. Do you want to pay for the guy behind you? And he's like, oh no, and drove off. Broke the chain. If you break the email chain, all sorts of bad luck is coming your way. That's sort of like, like we get this grace, this gift, and then we, well, what am I supposed to do with it? Do I have to like give it away? Do I, do I, am I now obligated to buy everybody's Starbucks? Is it like, what, do I just pay it all forward? Is, do I now have to become a monk? Like, what, what does it mean? What do I do now that this grace has appeared? And, and the thing is, is, as the grace of God comes to us not like that at all. It does not come as somebody else purchasing your coffee in a Starbucks line. It comes as something more glorious. It comes as this great, mighty, glorious king and bazillionaire invites you to his coffee farm where there are coffees of all kinds and and roasting centers of all kinds, and he invites you into the process of it and and to to be steeped in it. Anytime you want coffee, you can have it. It's there. There are all sorts of people who are involved, and, and it's glorious, and it's wondrous. And you start to wonder, why did I ever like Starbucks to begin with, if I'm honest? This is much better. It comes as this overwhelming joy, not just a a one-time thing in a coffee line, the drive-through. And so you renounce the old ways of getting coffee. You step in to the glories of things, flavors and combinations you never knew were possible. And so the grace of God comes, and in its scope, it is so overwhelming that it turns your whole life over. It welcomes you into something so new and so rich that it can be said that it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. All of those things that you once clung to, that you were once captivated by, that you once loved, 
They are not characterized by the God of grace. They are ungodly. They are worldly passions. Those things are nothing as compared to him. And so it invites us into an entirely new way of living. To live, note how how this this progression, this self-control, which is a way of speaking about this, this inner being, this this way of being regulated and at peace with yourself and, and, and with the way you conduct yourself in the world that it is, it is otherworldly. We live in a world where people just lash out at every sort of thing. The more I learn about myself, the more I've learned. I've just been, been a person who's been taught by the world, by myself, by everybody to just lash out, get what you want, impose. And I react and I don't respond. Here the grace of God comes and it trains us to be at peace in our inner being, that we are self-controlled, that we are upright in this relationships that we have with other people, that we conduct ourselves with with dignity and with integrity, with love in a way that, that exhibits this glorious grace that we have received. Not in a way that, that demands that imposes, that steals, that argues, but that is upright in every way and is godly. Speaking of our our disposition in this world that reveals itself to be so deeply connected to our God and Savior that it can be said that the way we are living is not ungodly, is not controlled by worldly passions, but is controlled by our gracious God. It is godly. And if you're wondering to yourself, who is able? Note the glory of the grace of our God, that it trains us in these things. It does not become for us a taskmaster. It does not become for us a a cliff that that we we have to to know how to survive or we're going to fall to our doom. It comes to us as a teacher, as an advocate, as a, a... a friend, to apprentice us in the things of God, to become more and more like him in our inner being, in our relationships, and in our life with God. It trains us. It teaches us. It's patient with us. And so we, in patience, can wait as the grace of God works itself out in us now, in this world, in this present age, it says. An age characterized by worldly passions and darkness and ungodliness and wickedness and sin and misery. It teaches us to wait for the glory that is yet to be revealed. When our great God and Savior comes back to restore all things, most of all to restore us fully to himself. God's grace, it's appeared. It's revealed itself in the person and work of Christ, and it trains us 
to grow more and more like him, that we might be a people who no longer find any joy in those worldly passions or those ungodly ways. But we can renounce them because we see their futility. Where do you need to renounce worldly passions? Follow Christ. You know, there's a, a saying in the Reformed tradition that we have to be serious about sin. John Owen uh, famously spoke about it in this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That we, that we need to be a place that takes sin seriously. And this is true. But what does that mean? You can't take sin seriously if you don't take grace seriously too. Because it's not about you living white-knuckled. It's not about you digging deep within yourself and finding that new layer that allows you to live that perfect and blameless life in your own strength. It is not about you knowing all the answers and fixing all the problems and having all the things. It is about you being trained by our gracious God to be more and more like Him. And you can't do that if you don't know What is godless and what is godly? What is a worldly passion and what is the joy of the Lord? If you would take sin seriously, you must take grace seriously too. And when you do, you will find that the grace of God spreads. It cannot be contained. We like to lock our precious things up, right? Maybe you have a safety deposit box. I've got a little fire safe for all the important documents. Or we get new shoes and we sort of tiptoe around. You don't wear them on the rainy, muddy days, right? Unless they were mud shoes, but that's a different thing. We We don't like our precious things to get out there and be exposed, but the grace of God is not like a jewel that can be locked up in a safe. It's like the sun that just shines with glory and its light and its heat. All oh, the clouds may come by for a while, but it will break through. And you can't tarnish or corrupt it like, like you can scuff up your brand new shoes. The light and the heat is always new and is always refreshing and it always gives life. And delight. And so Paul encourages Titus in his own pastoral leadership, and as a result, he's encouraging the church at large to declare these things to exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. We need to be a people who overflow with the truth of who God is, that he is a God of grace, that he is a God of redemption, that he is teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, that there is a way in which we need to learn to wait on his hope, on the hope of his appearing. And so we should exhort one another, encourage one another, spur one another on in these things. 
We should rebuke one another in love. There, there's not a, a rudeness to this word. It's, it's a clarity. What is good and what is right and what is true and what is not? And sometimes we don't know. But we have a God who does and who has not left us without his guidance. For he tells us that all authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so when we declare his truth, we have the freedom to announce it with all authority. And it doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what your parents say. It doesn't matter what your children say. It doesn't matter what your neighbors say. It doesn't matter what anyone says against that truth. No one can disregard us because we're not sharing our wisdom. We're not even sharing our grace. We are overflowing with the grace of God. Where has God opened the way for you to share his grace with others? We find it easy to be a people who share our malice or our judgment, or our slander, or our greed, or our covetousness, or our jealousy. But where has God opened a way for you to share his grace? Maybe people have seen how you are striving to live not in your own strength, but in a holy dependence upon God. And they see a peace of conscience in you because you know His grace has redeemed you and is purifying you. And they ask, how is it? How is it that you can do this? Maybe you've been praying about a child or a parent or a neighbor or a coworker praying for an opportunity just to speak a word of encouragement, of, to exhort them in grace, hoping that God would appear to them as well. And God, who is a God of grace, answers that prayer and opens that opportunity. Where has God opened you for you a way to share His grace with others? See, that's what we're here for. That's what the church is for. We are to be a living hope. A people who in this present age are learning from God's grace more and more what it looks like to live for and like Jesus Not the Jesus of our imaginations, not the Jesus that we've concocted, not the Jesus of culture, the true Lord of glory and grace in a way that brings change and transformation. We are to be a people who live in hope that he is who he says he is, that he will do what he says he will do. And though everything seems to be full of sin and misery around us, he is yet returning in glory as God and Savior. What is the church for? The church is to be a people 
saturated with the grace of God so that it cannot be contained. May he make us into such a place. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us in this. We confess that all too often we only scratch the surface of your grace. We think of it in terms of a get-out-of-jail-free card, or it wipes the slate clean, or it clears the way for us to try harder next time, and we don't understand the depth and height and breadth of it. That it has appeared revealing who you really are, and that it trains us, and that it breaks forth and spreads. Help us, Lord, to grapple with this in a deeply powerful and transformative way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.